Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. And we are attorneys with NFP's Benefit Compliance Department. And we use this podcast to bring to you developments that touch on employee benefit plans and uh, other issues that relate to it. Today, we're going to keep going with the post-Dobbs developments, um, specifically as it relates to travel reimbursement and coverage options for abortion-related services. And and today, we're going to focus on an executive order, some recent guidelines that came out from HHS and two different state developments that relate to this topic. So, so Chase, let's start with the latter first, if you could walk us through the state actions. Yeah. Thanks, Suzanne. Great to be on the podcast again. And this issue just continues to evolve as we knew it would. It's, it's going to be a slow mover and um, there's going to be a lot more coming. So let's start with those state developments. Those continue to come in. Um, as do court rulings on some state laws. But I wanted to focus on two state developments that actually highlight the kind of opposite approaches that states are taking. And I think these also highlight the importance of two things that are kind of going to be our theme today, which are time and judicial review. So keep those in mind as we're talking here and we'll, we'll highlight it. But let's start on the East Coast on July 1st of this year. Again, this is after the Dobbs case has been decided. Um, New Jersey enacted two new laws that are aimed at protecting abortion access in New Jersey. Uh, we already knew that abortions are legal in New Jersey There's and there's no gestational limit. So abortion is protected throughout the pregnancy in New Jersey. Um, and the governor there is on record as proposing to make New Jersey a so-called sanctuary state for abortions. So to achieve that end, New Jersey enacted two new laws Uh, One of the new laws protects providers from other states' inquiries about who or when an abortion was performed. And then the other prohibits extradition of a person who travels from another state to to New Jersey for legal abortion services, at least legal when we say that, we're saying in that state. Um, Similar laws were enacted in California. So going back to uh, to the West Coast there on the same day Dobbs was decided, which was June 24th of this year and so on the other end of the spectrum is is texas so this is the other state development and kind of seeing the two opposite approaches but on july 7th of this year there was a letter issued to a large international law firm that had offices in texas that letter was from the texas freedom caucus which is is basically a group of conservative texas legislators and the law firm had apparently announced that they would pay for abortion-related travel expenses for their employees as a result of the Dobbs decision. And so this letter, in this letter, the Freedom Caucus expressed the view that that, that is a violation of anti-abortion laws in Texas. And then the letter went a little bit further and outlined the caucus's hope. Remember, this is a group of legislators in Texas, so it's their hope to enact legislation that prohibits any employer in Texas from paying for elective abortions or for reimbursing abortion-related expenses, and then went further to say it would apply regardless of where the abortion actually occurs, in other words, out-of-state abortion travel, um, and then also included a statement that the penalties will be written into the criminal code 
meaning it could be enforceable against self-insured plans is generally applicable criminal law. So you can see both fully and self-insured plans and the employers that sponsor them getting pulled in here. The caucus also stated that in that letter that it would propose to disbar a Texas lawyer who violates any state abortion statute. I think that was directly um, or directed towards the law firm, right? Because the law firm is obviously a group of attorneys. So as far as what the letter means, it's just the letter, right? It doesn't control for purposes of Texas state law for now, but it, it does indicate which way the Texas legislature might be leaning and which direction they're headed. Um, employers are going to have to weigh the potential outcomes in each state. And so this is going to be the challenge going forward as they do one thing to consider is ERISA preemption. And we've talked about this in past NFP resources and on webinars. So we're just going to hit it really high here, but that's the idea that a plan would not have to comply with a state law because ERISA preempts that state law. Um, that said, ERISA does not preempt criminal laws of general application. And, and what we're saying here is that this would be a criminal law of general application. So it leaves the door open for some risk for employers that are contemplating the coverage of abortion-related services. And, and there's likely to be more states that end up following the lead of Texas on, on this issue. Yeah, and I certainly want to point out, we, you know, of course, we personally may have views on one side or the other. We are staying neutral purposefully today and just bringing yeah. the facts of the of the state laws and what's happening in terms of uh, legislative action. So uh, please don't interpret anything we say today as taking one side or the other. Uh, but it is interesting to see how these states are fleshing things out on, you know, on, on the various sides of the issues. Um, you mentioned when you opened up that that time and judicial review was important. Can you talk to us about the importance of those two things? Yeah. So going back to those, those themes here, uh, first and foremost, we, we have to be patient. Uh, not only do new laws take time to pass the legislative process in each state, but then there's time after that for the state regulatory agents to develop guidance and or enforcement. Um, some of these laws are built into the criminal laws that apply generally to all entities or individuals in the state, as we just mentioned. Um, so criminal enforcement regime would have to be established, or, or at least the focus um, would have to take place on, on that particular item for enforcement to really come to fruition. But that leads to the other big item, which is judicial review. All these states' laws are being challenged in court on both sides, and it takes court's time to work through them. So there's another reason time will be a big factor. So courts in certain states will decide the fate of these state laws, and then there's going to be appeals, right? So it's just kind of the one round and then another, and then the higher courts weigh in. And so you can just really see the challenge for employers. They, they want to answer and develop policies for reimbursement or coverage or, or whatever their response is. If it's the opposite, they want to do that, but there are just so many variables uh, particularly for multi-state employers. So time and judicial review are, are really uh, key players in, in this, in the overall equation here. Right. And it, it certainly makes it challenging when we want to make, we want to, like you said, implement something now, and it's a, a bit gray area until those things get worked out in the States. But mm -hmm. um, let's go back to federal law. There's an executive order, there's HHS guidance. So uh, let's start with the executive order, which is obviously coming from the president, correct? Yeah, so we've had a lot of executive order orders over the years now. It feels like they're more common than they used to be, and they're focused on different things. 
um, depending on what's the hot item and what's what the administration is trying to focus on. But this executive order was, uh, which was signed on July eighth of this year, was was really stating the administration's position that abortion access and coverage should be protected. And again, I'm glad you brought that up, Suzanne. These are not our opinions, right? This is just stating what the executive order is here. Uh, but really, uh, that becomes a question: What does that mean? What's the power of an executive order? What's the authority? Um, really, the executive order on its own does not have an immediate impact or effect. It's really just directing the agencies um, in the federal government, which are really part of the executive branch of the government, and, and that those agencies are under the direction of the president. Um, so direct, directing those agencies to take specific steps or action items. And so this executive order really directed HHS, that's the Department of Health and Human Services, um, to protect ex- access to abortion care. And that included prescription or medication services and items related to abortion, to ensure emergency medical care, to protect access to contraception services, and to address privacy issues. Right. That just uh, that list of issues that you, you just outlined showed how complex this this topic really is. Yeah. Um, so they directed HHS. What has HHS done so far? We're always happy when they do provide guidance. It's nice to get some, you know, some really hopefully some clear guidance from the federal government. So what, what have they done so far? Yeah, that's right. Sometimes these executive orders come down and then it takes a long time to get guidance. Um, but sometimes the agencies work quickly and um, they surprise us. So on July 11th, so literally three days later, HHS published some guidance aimed at medical providers. Uh, basically, that guidance solidified the HHS position that access to abortion in emergencies is something that is protected by federal law. So really a restatement of a position here, but HHS specifically calls out a law called MTALA, which is not a familiar law for uh, benefits world, but that's the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. And basically, um, HHS takes the position that preempts or overrules any state law that would be anti-abortion or otherwise restricts abortion coverage in emergency situations. And we know some state laws do that. Yeah. Just a note on Imtala. That's why we've seen the growth of individuals going into the ER, you know, for, for various services because Imtala requires stabilization of Mm -hmm. a patient in the ER. But uh, so it's certainly been utilized a lot over the years. Um, But, but go ahead and tell us how it, it impacts us here. Yeah, so it's like you said, it's not really a new law directive. It's this is from HHS. This is just a reaffirmation of that position. So whether MTALA would actually require treatment that might be prohibited by a state law is a question that would come back to judicial review. So you can kind of see this uh, setting up into a, a court battle. Uh, the courts will once again kind of decide the fate of that question, and again that plays back into our themes for today, which are time and judicial review as uh, the biggest factors on how that will play out. So patience, it's key, it sounds like. So, um, did HHS provide any other response, any other clarification? Yeah, so just two days after that, um, on July 13th, they published another piece of guidance. And, and this one was more directly related to pharmacies and pharmacists, uh, but does have an indirect impact on the group health plans. Um, Basically, the HHS guidance states that retail and hospital pharmacies have an obligation, and the HHS says that obligation arises under federal anti-discrimination laws. 
that the obligation is to fill prescription drugs that were legally prescribed, even if a drug could be used for purposes of abortion. So in other words, even though a drug could be used to induce an abortion, if it was legally prescribed for another purpose, then the pharmacy has an obligation to fill the prescription. And that could potentially be even if the state makes it illegal to prescribe that drug. And so you see kind of the table setting for more conflict here. Uh, thankfully, though, to help us understand this, the guidance does include a, a few examples. So here, here's one. An individual experiences severe and chronic stomach ulcers such that their condition meets the definition of a disability under civil rights laws. And again, this is right out of the, right out of the guidance here. Their gastroenterologist prescribes misoprostol, and I'm probably not saying that correctly, but I think it's misoprostol to decrease risk of serious complications associated with ulcers. If the pharmacy refuses to fill the individual's prescription or does not stock misoprostol because of its alternate uses, it may be discriminating on the basis of a disability. So misoprostol is a, an abortion. You know, one of the side effects could be a, a termination of pregnancy. And so um, that's why, where there's that conflict. The um, prescription you know, could be used to induce an abortion there, but because it's prescribed for the purpose of addressing the ulcer issue, the, the pharmacy would have to fill that prescription. So that could be a big deal and a big impact for group health plans and their prescription drug vendors or the prescription drug portion of the, of the plan. Um, but basically the guidance is trying to help better support individuals and employees in obtaining legally prescribed medications. That's, that's the position of the federal government for now um, for the Biden administration. And well, so that, that really opens up so many interesting questions on whether someone will ever challenge that type of a prescription if someone hasn't had a history, for example, of stomach ulcers or something. I don't know if it'll ever get to that level, but you can see another challenge potentially, um, you know, coming through on that. So we'll exactly. have to see how all of this plays out time and judicial review. It looks like, you know, there'll be a lot of uncertainty due to all these inconsistencies in the states and, and in challenges um, to the federal law. And with HHS guidance, you know, continuing to roll out on that. We just have to watch for the developments in this area. So Chase, any thoughts in summary when it comes to employers and their group health plans when they're trying to determine whether to provide travel reimbursement arrangements for this situation? Yeah, it's just so challenging for employers. And I know that's probably not the easiest thing or the best uh, guidance for employers, but it's just a quagmire and it's just the position we're in. Um, employers just have to be aware of the shifting landscape and they're going to have to accept some risks in moving forward with any coverage or reimbursement of travel or abortion coverage. Um, again, it does depend on the states in which the employer has employees. You know, if your employee base is all in one state, um, I guess you could decide to cover travel to a different state and maybe there's risks there, but um, it does make it easier uh, generally, if you're just in one state, whereas a multi-state employer is just going to have all sorts of challenges and, and a very quickly shifting landscape across the country. Um, employers should also deeply consider their goals and, and the goals or desires of their employee base. So for some companies, it may be very, very important to make sure you, you know, are getting these things covered. Whereas if you have an employee base 
that doesn't place a priority on, on abortion services, maybe it becomes less pressing. Um, so just taking into consideration what your business needs are and what your employee base is interested in. That's always kind of where you're going when you're talking about your employee benefit initiatives and strategies. Uh, from a compliance perspective, though, we'll just have to continue monitoring this and, and seeing what the federal and state governments do, what the state legislatures do. And then, of course, this idea of time and judicial review, what will the courts do with this? So it'll just take more time and patience. And um, in the meantime, we'll continue to watch this and provide updates where we can. And so reach out to your NFP contact uh, for more information as this, as this continues to develop. Chase, before we close it out, why don't you um, tell them what uh, resources we have currently? Yeah, so we've been spending a lot of time uh, pulling in resources, trying to digest all of this, and then um, putting out some uh, hopefully helpful information. We have a, a helpful white paper that walks through some of the benefits compliance considerations for employees or employers that are considering travel reimbursement or coverage of abortion services. That walks through many of the different HRA designs or, or reimbursement uh, structures and what to think about on each of those. Um, we have a webinar that we did last week where we pulled in some of our friends from an outside law firm, and that's available for, for listening, download, and the slides are available as well. And then we continue to monitor this and provide updates to our biweekly newsletter called Compliance Corner, which comes out every second Tuesday. And that's our way of kind of tracking everything. And, and we'll, we'll continue to do that at this, at the state level and the federal level as best we can. That's so, uh, yes. Thank you, Jason. I thought Proskauer did an excellent job on that webinar. So highly recommend uh, reviewing that webinar. If you weren't able to uh, attend that webinar, it's, it's available uh, through your NFP um, broker consultant. So Chase, yes. thank you for covering this. I'm sure we'll have more of these to, to go. And uh, as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us today. 